But tonight, here we are, looking at the Word of God once again, beginning with Ezekiel chapter 31. Good evening. Last week on Sunday evening, on the other coast, thousands of miles away, Billy Graham preached his final crusade. He announced that it was his last crusade. It was in New York, just outside of the city, Flushing Meadows, New York, where he had between 80 and 90,000 people per night come out to hear him, capacity crowds, a couple of the nights, sweltering heat. But what a way to end in faithfulness ending as he began, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an epic career, an epic time of serving the Lord. But as I thought about him this week, and of course that's what he said. It was his last crusade. He said that for several crusades in the past. He may have one more up his sleeve. Who knows? But I thought this week of a couple of other men who started with Dr. Billy Graham and had incredible opportunities, in fact, were known when they started and when he started, and had an incredible reputation already, more so than Dr. Graham had when he began. One was named Charles Templeton. He was considered by one seminary professor, one seminary president, to be the most outstanding preacher presence for evangelism in America of his day. The other was named Braun Clifford, also very renowned, very promising. And uh, it was said of him, at age 25, young Clifford has touched more lives and influenced more leaders and set more attendance records than any other clergyman in American history. Now, Billy, we've heard of. We haven't heard much of Charles Templeton nor Bron Clifford. That's because five years after entering the ministry, Charles Templeton left the ministry declaring he did not believe in the personal claims of Jesus any longer. Bron Clifford died an alcoholic. They buried him outside Amarillo, Texas. He lost his family, lost his health, lost his ministry, lost everything. Now here's two men who had incredible potential, incredible opportunities set before them. And they passed into history like that. Quite a difference from one they started out with named Dr. Billy Graham. I think of the nation of Egypt. The nation of Egypt had so many opportunities to hear the truth, generation after generation. God gave that nation unparalleled opportunities, and yet Egypt squandered them. First of all, Joseph was sold into slavery there. He became the prime minister over Egypt. But as time went on, there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. He sort of passed away from their memory. God raised up Moses in the courts of the pharaohs, the royalty of Egypt, who made quite an impact. Then there were a 
about a million, 1.5 million Jewish slaves who left in Exodus, Egypt, leaving their testimony of an all-powerful God. Jeremiah moved there to Egypt some years later. Even the Lord Jesus Christ spent some time as a youth in the country of Egypt, and yet Egypt squandered all of the testimony that she had been given year after year. So we are not surprised with all of the witness that God left Egypt to see the judgments continuing on this nation. We've seen them in Isaiah, seen them in Jeremiah, and now see them again finally here and close with the judgments to Egypt here in these next two chapters. Now it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month. That's June 21st, 587 B.C. in our calendar. That the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Ezekiel was to give this message, as it says, to the Pharaoh himself. Some kind of declaration, perhaps in person. But he was to get this message. Now, the Pharaoh was a guy by the name of Pharaoh Hophra. He was the current ruler in Egypt at the time. And he thought he was something special. He thought he was someone incomparable. No one was like him. And so the question, whom are you like in your greatness? Back in 1909, the British School of Archaeology was digging around the ancient capital of Egypt, Memphis, and was digging around the cliffs, around the hills, and there behind a gray mud hill next to a squalid, arid village, they discovered the ancient palace of Pharaoh Hophra. It was huge, the archaeologists claim, 400 feet by 200 feet, an enormous courtyard, seven stone-lined walkways, hallways, valuables, treasures. And so we know that he existed. And as the prophet Jeremiah predicted, he would be taken down. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all predict his downfall. And what happened to him is that there was a revolt in his kingdom and somebody got to him and strangled him to death. Now the real problem with this guy, as we have seen and we see here, is one word. It was the problem with mankind, with the world from the beginning. It was the issue of pride. He thought he was something special. God's going to cut him down to size. Heard about a little boy who had a self-esteem issue. Not that he had too little, he had too much. He said to himself, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. He went out to the backyard and he said that, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world, and he threw up the ball in the air and swung and he missed. And so he cried out, strike one. He had nobody else to play with. And then he shouted out again, I'm the greatest batter in the world. Threw the ball up in the air, took a swing at it, missed, and he said, strike two. 
straightened his cap, spit on his hands, rubbed them together, trying to figure out what's wrong, looking at the ball, looking at the bat, said once again, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Threw up the ball, swung at it, and he missed. He said, strike three, you're out. Then he paused as if a thought struck him and said, Wow, I'm the greatest pitcher in all the world. He thought he was the greatest batter, strike three. He said he was the greatest pitcher. Now, this Pharaoh thought he was the greatest king that ever existed. So God's going to give him a case study, a historical study, to show him that he is compared like another king, the nation of Assyria, in the following verses. Indeed, Assyria, begins the parable, was a cedar in Lebanon with fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature. And its top was among the thick boughs. The water made it grow. The underground waters gave it height with their rivers running around the place where it was planted and sent out rivulets to the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was exalted above the trees of the field. Its boughs were multiplied. Its branches became long because of the abundance of water as it sent them out. The nation of Assyria was in existence about a thousand years and was in dominion over all of the nation, sort of as the ruling governing empire, for about 700 years. So she was world-renowned for her stature among the other nations. And so Ezekiel begins by asking the question to Egypt, who's like you? And then he speaks about the nation of Assyria in this parable as of a tree. All the birds, verse 6, of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches all the beasts of the field brought forth their young, and its shadow In its shadow, all great nations made their home. In the Bible, sometimes a tree can represent a nation. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream one night. In Daniel chapter 4, it is recorded, his own words. He had a dream that he saw a great tree that grew up in the midst of the earth. It could be seen from the ends of the earth. It had abundant fruit. Its branches gave great shade to the birds and the beasts. But in his dream, he saw one of the watchers come down from heaven with a commandment to chop the tree down. And the only thing that was left was a banded stump in the ground. That represented him, Nebuchadnezzar. This great Babylonian empire, he said, who is like me, basically, Looking at Babylon one day, he thought he was the man. It was incomparable. Look at this great Babylon which I have built. And so Babylon compared to a tree, Assyria compared to a tree. It's compared here to a cedar in Lebanon. They grow to about 80 feet tall. And it was always a symbol in ancient times of majesty and power and dominion. And it was considered sort of like this mythological tree. Whenever it was represented, and it was often represented, it was represented as an empire or a king that had dominion over the earth. This tree is incomparable. It's tall, it's green. The beasts, the birds come and shelter under it. Thus, it was beautiful in greatness 
and in the length of its branches, because its roots reach to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches, so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Now there's a reference here to the garden of Eden. And it's interesting that the rivers that watered the garden of Eden would eventually water the nation of Assyria. Back in Genesis chapter 2, in verses 10 and following, it says, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The one was named Pishon, the second was the Gihon, the third river is the Hiddekel. It is one which goes toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. Now along these rivers that watered that ancient land of Assyria were dotted cities that took their political shelter and their military shelter under the great government of these Assyrian kings. For years they looked to Assyria for shelter. Now all of this would have significance to Egypt, to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh heard this, it would make an impact for two reasons. Number one, because Assyria was the only Mesopotamian nation that ever attacked Egypt, which it did in 633 B.C. Number two, because Assyria had fallen to the Babylonians, the very ones that God is going to use to destroy Egypt. And Pharaoh knew the Babylonians had been gaining in power and they were moving in his direction. And so this parable of this tree that is the nation of Assyria that fell would make a great impact. Because Egypt had been taken by Assyria and Assyria had been taken by Babylon, the very ones that would soon take the land of Egypt. So Ezekiel, the Lord through Ezekiel is saying, you're next. It's going to happen to you too. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and set its top among the thick boughs and its heart was lifted up in its height. Therefore, I will deliver it into the hands of the mighty one of the nations and he will surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness. Now, there's something that ties all of these nations aforementioned together. The nation of Judah the kingdom of Tyre, that city-state that we talked about last time, and Egypt. The common denominator was its arrogance, its pride. The pride of Judah is mentioned in Ezekiel 16, verse 56, where God calls it the days of your pride. They also thought they were impregnable. Now Jerusalem has fallen. The city of Tyre is mentioned in Ezekiel 27, verse 3. O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. And now Egypt, the pride of her power, shall come down. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, was quite aggressive. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar followed in his dad's footsteps. The the leader of the empire, really the founder of it, was Nabopolassar. He was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabopolassar decided 
that he would besiege the capital city of Nineveh, the Assyrian capital Nineveh, and it fell to Nabopolassar in 612 B.C. In 609, Nebuchadnezzar decided he had developed enough power to go after the remaining army, and he managed to crush the armies of Babylon in the area of Haran. And so now Assyria had fallen and was subjugated to Nebuchadnezzar, to the Babylonians. But this issue of pride, as it happened to Judah, as it happened to Tyre, as it happened to Assyria, as it happened to Egypt, it would also be the same problem with Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. Look at this great Babylon which I have built. His grandson, Belshazzar, will have a big party and boast in his greatness, and he will be humbled by God. Verse 12, And aliens, the most terrible of the nations, is a description of Nebuchadnezzar and the advancing Babylonian armies, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. On its ruin will remain all the birds of the heavens, and all the beasts of the field will come to its branches, so that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height nor set their tops among the thick boughs, that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. For they have all been delivered to death, to the depths of the earth, among the children of men who go down to the pit. Now the scene shifts, doesn't it? From the earth to the pit. From this glorious uh, vision here, of the garden of God down to the grave, called here the pit. And the Hebrew word here for pit is not sheol, though it will be mentioned later on. It's the word bor, which becomes a synonym for sheol. It's the grave. It's the place people are buried after they pass from this life. So it's a synonym. Now, the ancient world was fearful of death fearful of the grave, especially, as we noted last week, the Egyptians. They prepared for death in their mummification process. They were so fearful of what might happen in the underworld, they were petrified of the grave. When I was over in London a few months back and stopped at the British Museum, and they had several mummies. They had uh, mummies from different dynasties of Egypt, and one in particular that they had a special show on, Nesperanub, who was a priest in one of the ancient dynasties. dynasties. And they showed how this priest had been buried so meticulously. I found it interesting that when they would bury their dead, because of their superstition and their fear, they would bury amulets and figurines of different gods and goddesses in the wraps and sometimes in the casket of the deceased. And this one mummy that I was looking at, Nesperanub, the priest, had over his heart underneath the wrappings what they call the heart scarab. It was a carved scarab beetle with hieroglyphics on it. And the idea is that the hieroglyphics had commandments to the heart 
not to reveal any damning information that the gods would use against this priest at the time of judgment. Now, there are certain things the scarab beetle said. Don't tell them. Don't say. Now, if they're, if they're really gods, wouldn't they already know? But they were so scared and they were so superstitious that they thought these little icons, these little scarab beetles with hieroglyphics would keep the heart free from judgment by these gods. So as to tip the scales of justice in the favor of the deceased, they put these amulets and these icons in the grave. Thus says the Lord God, in the day... When it went down to hell, now we have the word Sheol, and they seem to be used in context synonymously here, the place of the departed, the grave. I caused mourning. I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers, and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nation shake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to hell together with those who descend into the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all the drink water were comforted in the depths of the earth. The fall of Assyria would become an object lesson to all of the nations, especially now the land of Egypt. For Egypt had this desire... All of the pharaohs did, Pharaoh Hophra notwithstanding, to be the principal governing power in the Middle East. Those hopes would not be realized. This pharaoh would fall. Now, Egypt's destiny would be like these other nations that fell and went down to the pit, like Assyria and other nations would be the destiny. The grave, not glory, would be pharaoh's future. They also went down to hell with it with those slain by the sword and those who were its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations. To which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude says the Lord God. So this question, this rhetorical question, is very similar to the question in verse 2. To whom will we compare you? Who are you like? Well, the answer now is obvious. You're no different than anybody else who lives and dies and stands in judgment in the end times. Your fate will be like all the rest. You may have been great on earth, but now you're reduced to the same level as everyone else. And there's an important truth here. In death, there's no respecter of persons. You've heard it before that the statistics on death are quite impressive. Every one out of one dies. No exceptions yet. The big exceptions will be the rapture of the church. There were some historic exceptions, those who were raised from the dead. Every one out of one dies. Well, Elijah was translated into heaven, so that's one exception. Every second, two people die on earth. It is appointed unto every man to die once, and after this, the judgment. 
Death is no respecter of persons. The, the issue is not if, it's when and where. Where will be the ultimate destiny of that person? Pharaoh's stock was all in this earth, in the temporary, in the here and now. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is beckoning him to look to the future and see what his fate would be. Chapter 32 it continues the judgment. But this now is a lamentation for the Pharaoh himself. It marks the final prophecy against Egypt and the final prophecy against all of the other nations. And at the end of this chapter, there's a shift as Ezekiel now speaks about the restoration of the nation of Israel. And this is a lament now for Pharaoh. It's interesting. Most funeral dirges, most lamentations were given after the death of somebody. This is given prophetically before his death because only God reserves the right to speak that way, because he knows the end from the beginning. And it came to pass in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, that's March the 3rd, 585 B.C., Jerusalem had fallen by this time, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You are like a lion among the nations. And you are like a monster in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet and fouling their rivers. In other words, Pharaoh, you're a real troublemaker, man. You stir up things wherever you go. You're trouble. God's about to deal with this chaos maker. Now, two figures of speech are given in the verses we just read. One is that of a lion. One is that of a monster. We saw that he was compared to both last time. The lion seems to be his own view of himself. The monster seems to be what God calls him. Oh, he saw himself like a young lion, unstoppable. I'm the king of the jungle. Nobody can put me down. But God calls him a monster. And there was an Egyptian myth about a certain monster who was called the chaos monster of the underworld. It was a great superstition. They were deathly afraid of that. And it could be that Pharaoh is compared to this chaos monster. You're stirring up chaos. You're a monster wherever you go. Oh, you think you're a young lion. That's your description of yourself. But I see you as a troublemaker. Some think that the monster refers to the crocodile. Sebek was the Egyptian god of the Nile, portrayed as a crocodile and was worshipped. Sebek was the one that they thought was the great protector of the Nile River, their lifeblood. So it could be that he's compared to that monster or just this chaos monster in in mythology. But, But what's important is this. How he saw himself and how God saw him were two diametrically opposed opinions. We have to be careful that we don't puff ourselves up and have a view of ourselves that is not God's view of us. In the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses the church of Laodicea. Their opinion of themselves was one thing. The word of the Lord to them concerning their condition was quite another thing. 
And the Lord comes to them in judgment. And he says to them, Because you say, I am rich, I am wealthy, and I have need of nothing, but you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Two completely different viewpoints. They thought they were great. I don't need anything. God says, you need everything. You're hurting for certain. Paul spoke about those who measure themselves by themselves. And we've all met people who say, oh, don't tell me about God. I'm spiritual enough. I have everything I need. And God may be saying, well, the truth of the matter is, you're a monster. You need help. You need salvation because you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's important that the view we have of ourselves is the view God has of us. And if you're a child of God, you're redeemed. You're His child. He cares for you and loves you as His child. And if you don't know Him tonight, God loves you and has a plan for your life, but you have to submit to that plan or else you will face the certain judgment of God. Self-esteem has been considered the number one problem in our country, the lack of self-esteem for years. Psychologists, counselors will tell people, well, your problem is you don't have a, an accurate view of yourself. You need to see yourself as wonderful and magnificent and unstoppable, and you've got to look in the mirror and tell yourself that. I found a newspaper article that reveals something quite different. The name of the article, interesting, is Jerks Have Too Much Self-Esteem. Here's the article. Common wisdom has it, recently, that a lack of self-esteem is the biggest problem facing young people, criminals, and the depressed, the abused, and abusers, and everyone else who doesn't go around with a smiley face pinned to his lapel. Now comes Health Magazine, which reports on studies showing that there is such a thing as too much self-esteem. At the University of California in Riverside, students who gave themselves ratings above those of their observers on cheerfulness, warmth, and intelligence were perceived by others to be hostile, deceitful, and condescending. The conclusions of the psychologist in order here, Dr. David Funder, eerily echo the kitchen wisdom of mothers long before psychologists were conducting such tests. Here's the conclusion. When you raise yourself higher than the view others have of you, you think you're wonderful and other people think you're a creep. (laughs) Pharaoh thought he was a lion. He was wonderful. He was unstoppable. God says, "You're, you're a creep. You're a monster. You're destructive. You're destroying your country. You're destroying your people. Thus says the Lord God, I will therefore spread my net over you with a company of many people, and they will draw you up in my net. And then I will leave you on the land. I will cast you out in the open fields and cause to settle on you all the birds of the heaven. And with you I will fill the beasts of the whole earth. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. 
Pharaoh would be trapped by his enemies. The net spread over them would be the armies of Babylon thrown out by Nebuchadnezzar, who would completely overtake that country. The picture here is of the crocodile, this beast, this monster in the Nile River, taken out, scattered out in the desert, on land, cast out in the desert. And then the birds and the beasts of the field are feasting on the carcass of this dead monster. And so Egypt will become helpless and destroyed. I will also water the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains and the riverbeds will be full of you. Now just that language, that description of their blood on the land is reminiscent. It does recall the seventh plague in Egypt where the waters were turned into blood, the waters of the Nile River. Here, however, it's their blood that will water the land. When I put out your light, God says, I'm going to put out your lights, man. I will cover the heaven and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. Again, the language recalls the ninth plague in the land of Egypt, darkness over the land. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. A footnote to that. So often in the scriptures, a day of judgment, and especially the day of the Lord, is given this description. A day of clouds, a day of great darkness. Scriptures like Isaiah 60, Isaiah chapter 13, Joel chapter 2 describe the day of God's judgment coming as the day of darkness. I heard that in the Babylonian Talmud, the Jewish sages, because of these references to darkness and judgment, say that God reserves judgment, physical darkness on the land, as a judgment for unusual wickedness committed by a land which I found interesting, especially in light of the fact that the greatest sin the world could ever commit would be to crucify God's deliverer, the Messiah. So we're not surprised to read that darkness fell over the land for a period of time when Jesus Christ was on the cross. Great darkness, great judgment. Nor are we surprised to read of the fifth bowl in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period that is poured out upon the kingdom of the beast, and it is darkness that covers that kingdom for a period of time, and with it a pain that comes with it, as men gnaw their tongues because of the pain. We continue, I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Yes, I will make many peoples astonished at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them and shall tremble every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. By the swords of the mighty warriors, all of them, the most terrible of the nations, that's Babylon, I will cause your multitude to fall. They shall plunder the pomp of Egypt, and all of its multitude shall be destroyed. I will also destroy all its animals from beside the great waters. Now, the Nile River had many canals, offshoots, where the water was diverted with little foot pumps to irrigate 
that whole delta region. Cattle were feeding by it. Crops were watered because of it. The foot of man shall muddy them no more, nor shall the hooves of animals muddy them. And then I will make their waters clear and make their rivers run like oil, says the Lord God. It was the activity of people around the Nile and the activity of the animals that would feed and live around these canals that caused the waters of the Nile to become muddied. But then also, in a figurative sense, it was Pharaoh Hophra himself that muddied the waters politically for Egypt, spiritually for Egypt, with all of his pride and arrogance and political intrigue and alliances that he made with other nations. It was his pride that muddied the waters for everybody else. God promises that he'll make them smooth like oil. In other words, undisturbed, no more activity. The land will be judged and become desolate. When I make the land of Egypt desolate and the country is destitute of all that once filled it, when I strike all who dwell in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord This is the lamentation with which they shall remember her. The daughters of the nation shall lament her. They shall lament for her, for Egypt, and for all her multitudes, says the Lord God. Now, the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 17, is another view of Sheol. Egypt is followed after life into the underworld as she crosses the threshold of death beyond the grave. And you'll notice something, that Pharaoh is addressed in hell, in the grave, after death, by other nations, by other national leaders, very important national leaders, who are already there, as if to greet him and say, look, you're not greater than anybody, you're now like us on the same level. And so verse 17, it came to pass in the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Now, you'll notice that uh, the month is not named here. And so we figure it is the same one as mentioned previously that makes the date March 17th, uh, 585 B.C., just two weeks after the first part of this chapter were given. Son of man... Wail over the multitude of Egypt and cast them down to the depths of the earth. Her and the daughters of the famous nations with whom or with those who go down to the pit. So it's not just the leadership of Egypt that has fallen, but the leadership, Pharaoh, his cabinet, the example they set has affected now the people. Here's another question. Another rhetorical question. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Remember back in chapter 31, verse 2, the question, Whom are you like in your greatness? Here's another question. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Notice the rest of the verse. Go down, he placed with the uncircumcised. Look at you now, Pharaoh. You are no different. You are no greater than all those who are around you. So Egypt enters the underworld, and three nations are there with a glorious past who speak to Pharaoh. 
They shall fall in the midst of those slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword, drawing her and all her multitudes. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with those who help him. They have gone down. They lie with the uncircumcised slain by the sword. Assyria is there, and all her company that is, the nations that were allies with Assyria, with their graves all around her, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. Her graves are set in the recesses of the pit, and her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who cause terror in the land of the living. There is Elam and all her multitude, all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who have gone down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who caused their terror in the land of the living. Now they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Elam was once a mighty power, but it was Babylon who, as they grew in strength, subjugated and controlled this land, conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. It was east of Babylon. They have set her bed in the midst of the slain with her multitude, with her graves all around it. All of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, though their terror was caused in the land of the living. Yet they shall bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. It was put in the midst of the slain. There are Meshach and Tubal and all their multitudes with all their graves around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, though they cause their terror in the land of the living. Now, these two countries, these two areas, Meshach and Tubal, are in modern-day Turkey. They're the north and central areas of Turkey. Keep them in mind because they become allies with Gog, and that will be explained when we get over to chapter 38 and 39. They do not lie with the mighty, who are fallen of the uncircumcised, who have gone down to hell with their weapons of war. They have laid their swords under their heads, but their iniquities will be on their bones. Because of the terror of the mighty in the land of the living, yes, you shall be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and lie with those slain by the sword. There is Edom her kings and all her princes, who despite their might are laid beside those slain by the sword. They shall lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. Now, we remember already back in chapter 25 the judgments that were given upon the land of Edom. Her fate is already sealed. And here we see them now post-judgment, consigned to the pit, consigned to the grave. These three great nations looking at Egypt and saying, you are no different, Pharaoh, than any of us. We all ended up here. You ended up here. You thought you were great. I guess you're not. There are the princes of the north, all of them, and all of the Sidonians, we have already read about their judgment, who have gone uncircumcised or who have gone down with the slain in shame at the terror which they caused by their might. They lie uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Pharaoh will see them and be comforted over all his multitude. Misery loves company, doesn't it? Oh, great, I'm not alone. 
There are others suffering my fate. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword, says the Lord God. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall be placed in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword, Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord. Lesson is the same. In judgment, in the pit, after a life of glory and greatness and splendor and majesty, now they're all on the same level, suffering the same fate. It's an important lesson because I have talked to people, unbelievers, who have very lame ideas about the future. You tell them about God's love. You tell them about heaven. You tell them about the possibility of salvation. You warn them of the consequences of hell. And the best they can come up with is, well, I'm looking forward to hell. All my friends are going to be there. Well, that may be true. But it's not going to be a party. It's not going to be party time. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be miserable. Or like Ted Turner who said, well, who wants to go to heaven? It's perfect. He said, I'd rather go to hell. That place needs improvement. Like there's some tenant improvement plan for Ted Turner in hell. Here's Egypt, so glorious at one time, thought, look at me, I'm something. But not planning for the future, only looking at the present, wanting to be the leader in the Middle East. But God used Babylon to show Egypt, you're nothing. And then God will judge Babylon to show Nebuchadnezzar, you're nothing. And the point is, we don't plan usually far enough ahead. An older Christian was talking to a young man who was just graduating from high school and sung, said, young man, tell me about your plans in the future. He said, well, I plan to go to college, sir. Great. Then what? Well, then when I graduate, I'm going to get a job in the profession for which I have studied. Great, said the older gentleman. Then what? Because, well, then I'll probably get married and have a family. Great, good plans. Then what? Well, then I'll raise my family. They'll grow up. They'll get out of the house. I'll retire. Great, then what? Well, then uh, I'll grow old and I'll die. The older guy said, great, then what? The kid was befuddled. He hadn't planned that far ahead. And most people don't. Pharaoh didn't. And it's important that we do. Now, Ezekiel 33, there is a great change. Because chapter 32 finishes uh, Ezekiel's oracles on those seven nations, those seven countries and or city-states like Tyre, etc. Those judgments are finished. Now the focus turns back to Israel and ultimately the restoration of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple. And in chapter 33 in the first part, we return back to the theme of the calling of Ezekiel as a watchman for the house of Israel, who he is, what he is to be to the people. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, 
When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, that is, patrolman, guard, sentry, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and take him away, his blood shall be on his own head. Watchmen were important in ancient cities. Remember, the ancient towns like Jerusalem, like Babylon, they had walls around the city and towers on the walls and watchmen that were stationed on the walls in the towers. Their eyes were trained to see in the shadows at night, to look for objects on the horizon. And these watchmen were trained to see any trouble that might be coming, any attack And it was their duty as the watchman to sound the trumpet, the warning, the alarm clock. The enemy's coming. We're in danger. Ezekiel, several chapters at the beginning in chapter 3, was also called the watchman there. And I think that the term watchman is a very good term for a prophet. In the early days, back in the days of Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, the prophet was called a seer, one who sees visions from God. Later on, they were called in Hebrew, Nebi, which is a spokesman for God, because they spoke to the people on behalf of God what they had seen in that vision or heard in an utterance from God. And so here, this beautiful term, watchman, is somebody who sees and tells. Sort of a composite description of what the prophet was to be. Verse 5, He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet... And the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. You, therefore, shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. Now, once the watchman gave the word and the warning to the people, He had faithfully discharged his duty, and it was no longer his responsibility. It was now the responsibility of the individuals who heard the message. Now, in that, Ezekiel was faithful. A faithful spokesman for God. A faithful prophet of the Lord, giving accurately, passionately, the message God had given to him. He had discharged his duty. Sometimes the messages were comforting. God will restore Israel. We'll go back one day to the land after 70 years of captivity. Sometimes the messages were not so comforting. They were harsh, difficult to hear. But he was faithful. And so that's the job of a prophet, to both comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, if need be. And this prophet did both. Oscar Wilde once said, A true friend is somebody who will stab you in the front. 
You see, an enemy will stab you in the back, wait till you're not looking, and say things behind your back. A true friend will confront when need be. This is a great spokesperson, this prophet Ezekiel. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn away from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. And so God is telling this prophet, Prophet Ezekiel, you have a responsibility. I am making you, holding you responsible for these lives, these people, these captives, these people of Judah and Israel, tell them, warn them of what is coming. And he did. He told them Jerusalem would fall. It fell. He discharged his duty faithfully. He was responsible to them. The question for us is who are we responsible for? What what members of our family, what people do we work with, what friends, what neighbors that live among us, what people does the Lord bring us in contact with where we bear a responsibility to tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Paul the Apostle stood before the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, and he said, I testify to you this day that I am innocent from the blood of all men for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so we have a wonderful opportunity mixed with a mandate from the Lord, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Speaking of Billy Graham, he said, we are not responsible for the past generation. God cannot hold us responsible for future generations. But we have this generation... We have these opportunities today. What will we do with them? I heard an interesting statistic one time that if you could hold a crusade every night of the week, seven nights a week, 52 weeks a year, for 35 straight years, and you had 50,000 people in the stadium every night, for 35 years. And if every single night at the altar call, a thousand new people came forward, that at the end of 35 years, listen to this, you would be further behind the task of world evangelization than the day you began. The reason is the exponential growth of population on planet Earth, what it will be like in 35 years, compared to what it is today, that by that time there will be so many people who have been born and died that you'll be further percentage-wise behind the task of world evangelization. But if you were the only Christian on earth, the only one, and you prayed, Lord, within 12 months, help me to lead just one other person to Jesus Christ. If God answered your prayer so that at the end of 12 months you've led one person to Christ, now there's two Christians on earth, you band together and pray that each of you will lead another person to Christ so that by the end of the second year, you have now four Christians. By the end of the third year, eight, and then 16, then 32, then 64. That exponentially, within 35 years, 
you'll be fighting over pagans to evangelize. There won't be any left practically. And so that that whole glorious opportunity of spreading the gospel through holy gossip. Psst, hey, have you heard the good news? In the bank, in the grocery store, with the neighbor, just the opportunities that God has given to us. Now I've got to see where I left. I got so carried away with that I lost my place. Oh, yes. Verse 10, Therefore you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now these Israelis, these people of Judah, these captives were saying, well, if this is our fate, if judgment is inevitable, if it's going to come, and it had already by this time, you'll see that somebody comes and announces it's already fallen, then we're doomed. There's no hope. What what hope is there for going on? How are we ever going to make it? So God answers them. He's basically saying, look, I don't get off in judgment. I get off in repentance because through your repentance, I will extend my mercy. You will see my love. You will experience my grace. God would rather bestow blessing than judgment. That's his desire. That's his heart. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, that question was asked back in Ezekiel 18. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Now that question is answered. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Don't ever picture God as up in heaven gloating over what's coming in terms of judgment upon the earth, as if he couldn't wait to unleash the horrors of the great tribulation. That's not his desire. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and have everlasting life. Therefore, you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall now fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. Can't rely on the past. Live for God now. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. It is possible to be lured into a place of complacency. And in that place of complacency, you are unaware that you actually stand in the coming judgment of God. You've lived in the past. You've you've looked to the past. Oh, I remember one time in the past. It was a glorious evening. I, I shed a tear and I raised a hand. But as Pastor Chuck so often says, all of those past experiences are not valid unless they translate into the present experience with the Lord. 
Live for God now. Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair. But it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, He shall live because of it. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. They complained, God isn't just. The Lord isn't fair. God denies the charge and says, look, I will pardon anyone who repents more than willing to forgive. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, January 8th, 585 B.C., that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been captured. This is a survivor, one who survived the siege in Jerusalem and maybe was hiding out for a period of time until it was safe And he escaped and traveled many months and hundreds of miles. And by the time he gets over to the Kibar River in Babylon where Ezekiel is, it's almost a year and a half since Jerusalem has fallen. And he gives him the news. And imagine how that news would sound to all of the captives who were there at the river, some of them who didn't believe this would happen. Some of them who still clung to what the false prophets said when they said, we're going back real soon. And Jeremiah said, not true. And Ezekiel said, not true. Now all hope is gone for those captives of ever returning imminently. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man came who had escaped. And he opened my mouth. So when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. You'll remember from chapter 3 that for a period of time, about seven years, the prophet Ezekiel was restrained from speaking. He could only act out certain judgments that would come. And uh, he was restrained from speaking. He was mute. As it says in chapter 3, the Lord says, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth. And so now he opens his mouth and he speaks to two groups. One is the group of uh, escapees who were in the land of Judah when Jerusalem fell, thinking we're going to hang around here because the Babylonians are leaving and we're going to get our city back soon, which didn't happen. And the other is to the group of people who are there at the Kibar River who often listen to Jeremiah or to Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land. We are many, and the land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore, 
say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword and commit abominations, and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Say thus to them, Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall fall by the sword, and the one who is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of pestilence. For I will make the land most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. Here's their argument. Look, Abraham was one guy, and God gave him the land. If Abraham, as one guy, had the right to inherit this land, we who remain, who are many, also have the right. What are they doing? They're boasting in their heritage. Look, we're sons of Abraham. We're children of the promise. It's our heritage. It's our right. It's our entitlement. John the Baptist at the Jordan River, when he was baptizing out there, and people were thinking in their minds, we don't need this, we're children of Abraham. He said, reading their minds, and say not within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up of these stones children to Abraham. They had boasted in their own heritage as all that was necessary for salvation. That was the problem here. Second group, and we'll finish the chapter, is the exiles in Babylon, who, interestingly enough, seems that they frequently went to listen to Ezekiel preach sermons. They liked the way this guy talked. He was a great speaker. <laughs> the problem is, they only listened, but they never put it into practice or really believed what he said. They're addressed here. The Lord opens his mouth to speak to them. As for you... Son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you, as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, this being what Ezekiel has already predicted, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. They loved to listen to Ezekiel's sermons. This golden-tongued prophet. He could spin a phrase. He could select the right words like apples of gold and settings of silver. And they'd walk out and they'd say, What a great message! Then they'd forget about it. They were hearers of the word only but not doers. 
And as James says, you deceive yourself. It was John who said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. The greatest thing you could say to your pastor, Chuck, when he gives those great sermons on Sunday morning, isn't great sermon, Pastor Chuck, but rather, the Lord has spoken to me, and by His grace, with His help, I'm going to put it into practice. You know, the doctor's most annoying patient, besides those who don't pay, are those who don't put into practice the doctor's orders. Did you know it's been estimated that 60 to 90 percent of patients leave a bottle of pills unfinished? They don't take all of their meds. They don't follow through with the prescription given or what the doctor's orders are. They go part way, but they don't listen and put it into practice. No greater joy than to know that God's children who hear the truth put it into practice. And how blessed we are to be a part of this movement, this fellowship, built upon the legacy of the whole counsel of God, every word of God, pure, taught, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, by God's great grace and strength. May we be His people who come and listen and put it into practice. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what we have read is the Word of the Lord. It is good. There are principles, as Paul said, that were written for our benefit. Examples to us of attitudes and actions, some to avoid and some to embrace. Lord, I pray that we as your people during these dark days of our history, living in a nation that has turned so far from you, would be like those watchmen on the wall, standing in the gap, seeing our workplace, our neighborhood as great opportunities to talk about you and to share your love and your plan to warn people of certain judgment, to invite people to know a loving, forgiving, gracious God. And we pray, Lord, that by our words and by our lives, many would not only be warned, but be won into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand? It's interesting when... People ask me to sign their Bible or something. The verse that I put is 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. And what a joy it is to see the Word of God put into practice in our lives. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul.
Senhor. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your 